Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. We're continuing our study through the book of Joshua. Joshua 7, I'll be reading all 26 verses. Please give your attention to the word of God. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord." and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the son of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. 
Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Hear these words from the Old Testament, from the book of Nahum, chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or hear these words from the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The God of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is an angry God. A God who is filled with wrath every day. We live in a culture that has invented a, a new God. A God ex that accepts all attitudes and all behaviors and is never angry at anyone for anything. And yet, I go to the movies and I see the heroes of our culture and they're all angry and they're all vengeful. They're our heroes. And we would never deny ourselves the right to be angry when we're sinned against and to demand justice when we're offended. We would never deny ourselves that right and yet we deny it of God. I mean, let me just ask you, how angry are you when somebody steals your parking place? How angry would you be if somebody stole your car? How angry would you be if somebody stole your job? How angry would you be if somebody stole your reputation? Somebody stole your health? Somebody stole your wife or your husband? How angry would you be if somebody stole your child? 
We call that righteous indignation. And yet, we deny that attribute of God. When we are offended, when we are sinned against, when we are harmed and there's no remorse, we demand justice. And that anger that we feel is only a tiny fraction and a very corrupted fraction of the anger that our holy, pure, righteous God feels when he looks upon the sin on this planet. We are made in his image. And to whatever degree we have any righteous indignation, it is a reflection of the one who created us. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament is angry with the wicked every day, and his pure hatred of sin demands that he judge it and destroy it. I begin with these very solemn observations because a passage like Joshua 7 is very hard for Christians to deal with, for those of us inside the church. This is a hard passage for us to read and understand and apply, let alone those outside the church, how they would view it. We can't just jump into a passage like this one without taking a few moments to kind of reboot our theology, to step back and let sink in what the scriptures teach about who God is so that we are understanding him correctly as we interpret this passage. If you're here this morning and the idea of an angry, wrathful God is objectionable to you or you're uncomfortable with it, just give us some time. We will talk about God's grace. We will talk about God's love. But those concepts are meaningless if you don't first understand how holy our God is and how much he hates sin and how much sinners deserve his wrath. The anger of God toward the wicked is an underlying theme of this entire book of Joshua. The historical background of this book, as we've seen, is a promise that God made when he chose Abraham, a wicked sinner himself. God chose Abraham and by his grace entered into a covenant of grace with him. He made Abraham his son. And he adopted Abraham's family to be his family. Abraham's family became God's family. In that process of making those covenant promises to Abraham and his family, God said to Abraham, there is an idolatrous nation to the west. A group of tribal states, actually. In a place that I am going to give to you and your people. They are wicked people. And they deserve justice, but I am going to delay justice. I am not going to judge them today. I'm not going to judge them this year. I'm not going to judge them this century. I'm going to wait four centuries, 400 years. But a day of judgment is coming. And in that day, you will go in and possess their land. 
as he said to Abraham, the cup, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their, the cup of wrath, God's wrath against their sin was not yet full. God was showing grace to the Canaanites, to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites. He was showing grace to them for 400 years. But when Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, he prepared them for a very difficult mission that they were going to be called upon to do. This is the way it's described back in Deuteronomy. These are the words of God through Moses in Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. God said to his people, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then over in chapter 20, he gives some more detail what that mission entailed. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Devote them to complete destruction. There's one word in Hebrew that means that. To devote something to God by means of complete destruction. That word in Hebrew is kerem. In English we call it the ban or the curse. Within the boundaries of Canaan, within the boundaries of the promised land, no living thing was to be left alive. You're talking men, women, children, livestock as God's judgment upon their wickedness was to be poured out. We saw in last week that sometimes, in addition to living things, there were other things that came under the ban or the carom. In Jericho, for instance, they were not even to keep any of the spoils, none of the wealth, the gold, the silver, anything material was to be destroyed as well. In order to understand the karam, and the karam is a very important concept, not just to, to the book of Joshua or to the Old Testament or the whole Bible, just to understanding who God is. There are theological principles behind the karam. Let me give them to you quickly. They're very, very basic. First of all, Yahweh, the one true God that is revealed to us in the scriptures, Yahweh is the creator of the universe. Yahweh created all things, everything. And therefore, everything in the universe belongs to him. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Every man, woman, and child belongs to God. He is their creator. He owns every living being. Second theological principle Yahweh is not only the creator of the universe, he is therefore the judge of the entire universe. All people that he has created in his own image are accountable to him. He is the creator, he is the lawgiver, and he is the judge of everything that falls short of the absolute standards of his law. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. 
And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. For as Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. Third theological principle behind the carom. All people are massively guilty in the sight of Yahweh. And the penalty for sin is death, spiritual death, as well as physical death, eternal destruction. As the book of Romans makes clear, all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. So this is a basic understanding of your world around you. Every day as you wake up, as you deal with the world, as you look at the people around you, everyone deserves to die and to die eternally in and of their own works. Everyone you meet, every living being, deserves God's wrath and punishment for their sin. They're accountable to their creator, they're accountable to their judge, and they are desperately guilty. Our God is pure, our God is holy, he cannot even look upon sin, he must punish sin, and he must destroy sin. That means that every breath that every sinner ever breathes on earth is an act of grace. Every breath is an act of God's grace. It's a delay in judgment. And so what that means in regard to these wicked people in the land of Canaan is that they had lived under grace for 400 years. God had delayed their judgment. And the world looks at what Joshua and the Israelites did when they destroyed those people and moved into the land. The world calls that ethnic cleansing. But it had nothing to do with their ethnicity. What it was, was a divine moral cleansing that was way overdue, that had been graciously delayed for centuries. You see, God is good and just to implement his death penalty at any moment. God is sovereign over the entire creation. Sovereign over all peoples. That means all deaths are according to his will. Are, and they happen according to his schedule on his timing. And according to his plan. And that's true whether they happen by his direct intervention. By striking somebody dead. Or by natural disaster like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake or illness or accident or murder whatever means by which we die we deserve it and God has ordained it I say that because it helps you to understand the rightness of what happened in the promised land remember God had slain the firstborn of Egypt all the firstborns of Egypt. God had slain, had drowned the soldiers of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And he was entirely just in doing it and good in doing it. You know, this is not the first time that we see the, the concept of a carom, of a total destruction of wickedness and wick, wick, wicked people. It's not the first time we see it in Scripture. Go back to Genesis 6. Verses 11 through 13. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That was the first major carom of God wiping out every living being due to their wickedness. And you know what? God's not done. There is a great carom to come. A worldwide destruction. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see... The reason that this chapter is hard for us to read and to, to apply and to understand is not because the theology is difficult to understand. The theology is actually quite simple. The theology is very basic to the scripture. The reason we struggle with it is our own small view of our sin, the small view of sins of others, and our weak view of the holiness and justice of God. What's different in the days of Joshua is that God's people were uniquely and temporarily called to perform a mission of bearing the sword of God's judgment against wicked people. God didn't work through a hurricane or even the angel of death to bring, to wipe out the population of the Canaanites. He used his people, the armies of Israel. That was unique. It was never repeated. Other nations were used to bear the sword of judgment against Israel in the future. But once Israel had populated the promised land, they were never called to bear the sword of judgment against other nations again. This was unique. But it was just. You know, it's interesting. There is still a sword of God's judgment that is wielded in our world today. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, verse 4, speaking of the civil magistrate, the policeman, the person who's in authority, the judge, the armies who are legitimately authorities under God's sovereign authority. Paul says about them in Romans 13, verse 4, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's exactly what Israel's armies were called upon to be. To be the avenger that carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. People worry about the church. Church is not given the sword of judgment. The church has never been given that authority to go and, and to by force wipe out any population. That's not our faith. That's not what the scriptures teach. We have no authority to compel the sword of justice. The only sword of justice that exists is in the hands of the civil authorities. We fight with the gospel. But we come to chapter 7, and we see that something has gone very seriously wrong with the mission that God had given to Israel. Judgment had begun with the house of God, to use the language of Peter. Last week you saw in chapter 6 that there was this great victory in Jericho. The people obeyed God, God intervened, he brought down the walls, and they destroyed the city of Jericho. 
The next military objective is this small town of Ai. I'm working really hard this morning to pronounce it correctly because all my life I've been taught it was AI, and you probably have pronounced it that way as, as well. I was reminded that in Hebrew it doesn't sound like that. It's AE, not AI. So if you think I'm pronouncing it wrong, go ahead and check me on that. But it's AE. But it's a very tiny town, and they only had a few soldiers. And so Joshua said, ah, no big deal. I'm just going to send 3,000 of my guys over there, and they're just going to take care of that small city very easily. But the, the army of Ai routed the Israelite army, not only defended the city, but actually chased the soldiers down through the valleys, routed them, and killed 36 of the Israelite soldiers. Now, this was humiliating, and I understand that. But from a military perspective, it wasn't exactly a devastating defeat. They only lost 36 soldiers. Why in the world does it say in the text here that the hearts of the people melted? Why was this so devastating? Yes, I understand it was embarrassing, but why was it so devastating? Well, you get an insight by looking at the prayer of Joshua. That's in verses 6 through 9. Basically, in that prayer, what Joshua is saying is, where were you, God? You broke your promise. You said, if we go in, you're going to give us everywhere the sole of our feet will touch. You promised to go with us. Where were you? You let us down. You broke your promise. I'm struck by the language of Joshua's prayer. It sounds a lot like the Psalms. There are Psalms that sound just like that. God, I'm going through this really difficult thing and you seem to be not there. Where are you? Where, how, do, how does this fit with your promises? We, we struggle with that. And Joshua, he's not being rebellious here. He's not being disrespectful of God. He's not dishonoring God. He's being very genuine from what he sees. What God is doing seems to be a breaking of God's promise. He doesn't know what's happening. But the Lord says in verse 10, get up, get off your face. Yes, the covenant promises have been broken, but not by me. There's been a covenant violation by the people of God. Now, we're not surprised by this because the historian who wrote this account throws a spoiler in right at the beginning. Don't you hate to do when they do that in a story? He tells us what had happened. He tells the reason for the defeat. We know from verse 1 that Achan, one of the men, one of the soldiers of Israel, took some of the devoted things. Later on in the chapter, we found out that he was seduced, he was tempted by a beautiful, expensive robe from Shinar, which is another name for Babylon, and some silver and some gold. And when you look at what he stole, part of your human response is like, what's the big deal? Yeah, he shouldn't have done that, but what's the big deal? From a human point of view, it was petty larceny. But these things were devoted to the Lord, devoted to to destruction and stealing them taking them for himself was a direct affront to the glory of God it was an act of high treason because it struck at the very core of their mission to represent God in verses 10 and 15 if you look at those two verses both in verse 10 and verse 15 this act is called a transgression of the covenant that's very significant. It wasn't just a sin. It wasn't just theft. It was a transgression 
of the covenant. You see, the sin was magnified by the, its personal nature in relation to God. He had to be made an example of. Think of the difference between the sins of Achan and the sins of the Canaanites that they were being judged for. I mean, what we know of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, all these, all these ites, all these people, what we know about them is that they were into to gross sexual immorality, they were into idolatry, they did child sacrifice, they practiced witchcraft. These are horrific sins. But they were not transgressions of the covenant. These were committed by people who were outside of the covenant. This sin was an affront to the glory of God. Let me ask you this question. Which crime would make you more angry? A stranger who stole your wallet or your son who stole your wallet? Which would make you more angry? The son's theft would make you more angry because it's much more of an affront to your authority and to all that you had done, all the grace, all the provision, all the great things you've done for your son. This was a transgression of the covenant. This was a covenant member, a son of God, who broke the covenant. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's the covenant principle. Much greater condemnation comes to those who have been given so much of God's grace within the boundaries of the covenant. And because it was a covenant violation, we find that Achan's sin was also a corporate sin with corporate effects. There's a big difference when you sin within the covenant community as opposed to outside of the covenant community in the sense in which it connects to every other covenant member's life. In verse 11, notice what the Lord says. Notice the language. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. Achan's sin, in in a sense, became the sin of the entire covenant community. That's an unpopular idea in our culture. This rugged individualism, this dogmatic individualism that we live with in this culture. But within the covenant community, sin is never an individual matter. The entire covenant community bears responsibility and the consequences of our sins. And the consequences are in verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. This is a consistent teaching from beginning to end in Scripture. Paul speaks of it very clearly in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, This is what Paul says, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member of the body sins, we all bear the accountability and responsibility and the consequences 
We tend to think of our sins as just individual private matters. But no matter how hidden your sin is, we think of sins like pornography or any other kind of sexual morality. We think, oh, it's just between me and God. No, it's between you and the entire church. Because all the sins in your life weaken the body. Your sins of gossip weaken the body. Your sins of pride weaken the body. Your sin of divisiveness weakens the body. Not only does it weaken the body, it dishonors the head of the body, Christ. And so the Lord holds the entire covenant community responsible for Achan's sin. And they respond as they should with discipline and restoration based upon confession. Look at verses 14 to 18. There the Lord describes a process by which he will expose the hidden sin and the guilty sinner. First of all, one of the, the, all 12 tribes, all the people of Israel are brought, brought before the Lord. And one of the tribes is identified as being the tribe where the guilty sinner is a part of. It says it is done by lot. And that probably means it was done by the Urim and Thummim. Those were, we don't really know what they were. The Bible doesn't describe them. But scholars speculate they were like two small stones maybe that were put into the breastplate of the high priest. And that when they were used by God's direction, and somehow we don't know if they were tossed like dice, we don't know, but somehow there were markings on the stones that indicated a yes or a no answer from God. That's what, as when we see the Urim and Thummim used, we see it as a means of God's communicating with, with his people, not verbally, but through, through a means. And so he probably used the Urim and Thummim to indicate that the tribe of, in question was the tribe of Judah, which interestingly was the tribe of Christ that he came from. And then among the tribe of Judah, by lot, it was indicated that the, a certain clan, the Zerahites, and then the family of uh, the, uh, the uh, Zabdi and his family, and then the individual, Achan, is identified. It does raise the question, why didn't the Lord just call out Achan's name at the beginning? Why go through all this ceremony? Why all this process? And I think it's similar to, remember when Jesus met with his disciples around the table at the Last Supper, the last Passover meal before he went to the cross, and he told them, one of you is going to betray me. He didn't say the name. Why? It was so that they could examine themselves. What the, how did the, the, all the disciples respond saying, is it I, Lord? Could I be the betrayer? Could I do this? I think it has the same purpose here for the Israelites. Every tribe, every clan, every family, every individual is asking themselves, is it my tribe? Is it my clan? Is it my family? Could I possibly be the one who has brought this judgment upon God's people? Could it possibly be me? They were to consecrate themselves. And consecration of yourself involves self-examination. To view our sins as God sees them. Now, Achan didn't step forward until he was identified. And that makes his confession suspect, I think, for all of us. Did he really mean it? But one thing that encourages me is that he does give a very full and accurate confession. Notice he says, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. You see, that's a sanctified understanding of sin. That's, that's a, an enlightened view of sin. That our sin, you know, his, everybody is, was hurt by his sin, but he understands that his sin is against God. Just like David, 
in his sin with Bathsheba. He hurt so many people, but he understood against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Achan recognized that. And he even had the insight to, he didn't make any excuses, he had the insight to say he was coveting when he saw the robe and the gold and the silver. He understood that this sin went to the very root of his being. He coveted in his heart things that God had said he must not have. And then he took them. Having made the confession, then discipline is carried out. And this really is an example of Old Testament church discipline. You see, Israel was both state and church. The church does not have the power of the sword. The church cannot punish physically anyone. But the Old Testament church, Israel, was both state and church. It was a theocracy. And so some of the penalties for their crimes, whether they were of a material nature or a spiritual nature, some of them, and some of the worst crimes that you can commit in Israel were of a spiritual nature. And they were punished by death, like being a false prophet. They're punished by death. And this sin was punishable by death. And so that is the punishment that was carried out against Achan and all that belonged to him. He was stoned to death, and then all that he had was burned. I found myself asking the question this week, is it possible we could see Achan in heaven? We tend to think not. But I think by doing that, we're wrongly associating temporal earthly judgment with eternal judgment, and I'm not sure we can do that. Achan didn't come forward to confess before he was identified, but his confession seems very real and genuine. I'm going to allow for the possibility that it was, and that he may have been forgiven by God and yet still had to bear the punishment that his sin deserved. Think about Uzzah. That guy who, I think for all well intentions and purposes, reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant when it was being carried on the, on the cart and it almost fell off and he reached out and touched it, which he wasn't allowed to do. A similar sort of sin to the kind of sin we're talking about here. And he was struck dead by God immediately. Is it possible we'll see Uzzah in heaven? Absolutely. Um, you know, the point of his death was not that he was eternally condemned. The point was, what he had done, he needed to be made an example of because of the, the seriousness of, his, of what he did. Prisoners on death row can find grace from God. Prisoners who are destined to be executed for murder can find the grace of God and be forgiven and yet still have to be punished, as rightly they should be, for their crime. But Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So I don't know about Achan. I don't know about Uzzah. We may or may not see them in heaven, depending on where their heart was, and only God knows where their heart was. But here's the most important part of this chapter, because it's a pretty, I tell you, I bore the, the weight of this passage all week. It's a heavy passage to study and to, to apply here are a couple of applications I came away from. The most important part of the whole chapter is verse 26. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Do you know what that verse says to you and me? As much as God hates sin, and we can't imagine how much he hates sin, as much wrath as he has towards wicked people, there's the possibility of his anger being turned away. 
His anger, his wrath upon our sin can be turned away. That's the gospel. There is a means by which the righteous, just anger of God, the wrath that must be satisfied, there is a means by which it can be turned away, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. The New Testament word for this is propitiation. I grew to love this word in seminary. I didn't know what it meant when I went into seminary. You'll find it. You do a word study on it. You'll find it several places in the New Testament. Propitiation is a beautiful word. It's a word that means a sacrifice. It speaks of a sacrifice, a blood atonement. The sacrifice of one who is perfect, who does not deserve God's wrath, who does not deserve punishment, who deserves only God's blessing. But the sacrifice of the blood of that one by means of God's wrath being poured out upon that sacrificial one and the wrath of God being exhausted and and satisfied completely upon that one so that God's wrath is turned away for those for whom that sacrifice is made. You see, that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were. The lambs, the the bulls, you know, all the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were propitiations, but they were not adequate to pay for your sin and my sin. Only the blood of the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, who lived a perfectly righteous life and pleased God in every way, only His blood could be shed in the place of you and me. 1 John 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me end end with this application for you. Everyone in this room needs to deal with the anger of God toward you. Every one of you has to face and deal with the anger of God toward you for your many, many sins. Every one of you. If you don't know Christ, if you have not experienced that propitiation that I just spoke of, you need to deal with it as soon as possible. Today is the day of salvation according to scripture. If you refuse to deal with it now, if you suppress the truth of God's wrath and anger towards you and your sin, you will one day very soon not be able to avoid it. You'll be forced to face this angry God. And you will deal with his anger and wrath forever. So I plead with you, go to the cross. Put your faith in the crucified one. Trust in the son of God who died for you. And believe that God raised him from the dead. Accepting his sacrifice in your behalf. And commit your life to him. Because in him, there is not only eternal life, there is forgiveness. There is pardon. Your guilt is taken away. For all sins, sins of the past, sins of the present, and sins that you'll commit in the future, they're all paid for. The wrath of God has already been poured out upon them at the cross. But let me speak in closing to the believers here. Those who believe that Jesus died for your sins. Those who believe that God raised them from the dead. Those who have been united to God, adopted by God, who are part of the covenant community. I want you to feel the application that I felt all week as I wrestled with this passage. 
God really hates your sin. You're not under condemnation anymore. You will never feel his wrath that your sins deserve. But God despises your sin. He hates it far worse than you could possibly imagine. Don't take your sin lightly. We're so guilty of that in the church. We take our sin lightly. We think because we're forgiven, because Jesus dealt with it at the cross, they don't really matter anymore. If you understand the God of Scripture and his attitude towards sin, you can't say that. Matter of fact, because you're in the covenant community, because you're in the community of grace, he actually is more angry at your sin now than the sins you committed before you were in the covenant of grace. Because now you're part of his family. Now you've known his grace. You've walked in his grace. You've seen. You understand what Christ has done for you. You understand who God is. The sins you commit, that you did in ignorance before you knew Christ, now you, you commit these sins knowing full well what they are and who God is and what Christ has done for you. God hates your sin. When you realize that, then you are driven to your knees in thankfulness, in joy, in humility for the gospel. The gospel becomes your life. You live by it desperately every day. It's only by grace that you know God. But not only do you know him, you're sons and daughters for all eternity in spite of what you've done and what you continue to do. You've got to begin with good theology about the wrath of God before you can truly understand and thank him for his grace. Let's pray. Father, difficult to read these passages. It's difficult to understand. And yet the theology is so simple. Forgive us for the way we forget who you are. Forgive us for taking our sins so lightly. Forgive us for not having zeal and passion to repent, for not throwing ourselves upon your Holy Spirit, resting and trusting in your Spirit to change us. Forgive us for living so much like the world. Father, I pray that a renewed understanding of the wrath that you have towards sin, the wrath that was poured out and satisfied at the cross, I pray that our Joy and thankfulness and passion for serving Christ have become deeper and greater. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.